Welcome to the Wild West Podcast, where today I'm excited to talk to skier and mountaineer Kit Delorier. It's tough to sum up Kit in a nice, tidy job title, so let's just say she's a mountain slayer. She's climbed Everest. She's also skied off the top of Everest. In fact, she's the first person in the world to ski off the highest mountain on each continent. She's also explored some of the wildest, most remote places on Earth, like Greenland and the Arctic. She's an activist focusing on preserving this massive wildlife refuge in Alaska. She's an author. She's a mother. She lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming with her husband and her two daughters. So she's a lot of things. She's also very contemplative and very mindful, and she's a great interview, as you'll hear in a moment. We talk about what exploration means in the 21st century. We talk about her journey to becoming a professional athlete. Before she landed a sponsorship deal with the North Face, she actually worked as a stonemason. And then we also go deep on how she's able to find herself in the mountains. Freedom would be my middle name if I could rewrite my name. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to ever not feel free. And when I'm in the mountains, I feel totally free. And I'm able to carry that with me when I'm not in the mountains. And if I ever feel like I'm losing it, I like to go back to the mountains. Kit's super interesting to listen to, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. We'll get to my conversation with her in just a moment, but first this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with ski mountaineer Kit Delorier. You know, what I wanted to ask is, to start is, Kit, you've had, I think unlike a lot of professional athletes who, you know, they start their journeys into sport and performance really early on in life, especially in skiing, um, you kind of got into pro skiing, ski mountaineering, um, and becoming like a full-time professional athlete a little later in life. Is that right? Yes, I definitely did get into my professional ski career or even skiing at all quite a bit later in life than most people think is normal for skiing. Um, everybody perceives skiing as such a difficult sport that if you didn't start when you were three years old, then you're behind the curve. And, um, while that may or may not be true for most people, um, I was first introduced to downhill skiing when I was 14 and I did have opportunities much younger than that to go out Nordic skiing in the kind of original style of Nordic skiing, which is really walking around in the woods with in the winter with skis on your feet, you know, to get to one from one place to another or simply to go outside and experience um, the season of winter and the joy of movement. So for me, that's where skiing came from. And um, at that time, we lived in New England. So it was just kind of walking around on in farmers fields and woods in the winter. And yeah, and when I was 14, I went downhill skiing for the first time and loved it. And I look at that now and I realize that it was a real gift to enter into skiing that way because for me, I love all aspects of skiing and I really came to it from a joy of being outside in the winter exploring. And I also love to go, you know, downhill with the gravity piece. So ski mountaineering and backcountry skiing is it's kind of a logical extension for me. It's where I get my greatest joy. And you had done a number of jobs before becoming a pro athlete. And I guess I just wondered what type of perspective you feel like that has afforded you on this lifestyle and this decision that you've made, um, not just to be a pro athlete, but also to be somebody who uh, is sort of an advocate for different causes that you believe in, who, who uses your platform um, in the ways that you've chosen to use it. Yeah, I have had a lot of different jobs. I mean, I 
I graduated from college. I went to college on an academic full ride scholarship and I graduated from college with honors and I moved promptly to Telluride, Colorado to fulfill um, a dream that I'd had for at least six years by then that I wanted to move to Telluride as soon as I graduated from college and, you know, live my life there in, in those mountains and ski and just have a lot of moments of exploration up there. I was called to live in the mountains. I like to say I'm a Rocky Mountain girl born to New Englanders. And so I did just that. I moved there. I moved to Telluride when I graduated from University of Arizona in Tucson. And having had like such a strong academic background and really enjoying learning, I still I still do. You know, those of us that love to learn are really lifelong learners. I I thought maybe someday I would go back to school for another degree. I still don't discount that probability. Um, but I also knew that I really wanted to be living my life hands-on. And I've also always had a really strong um, artistic bent. Yet for me, my art is usually in building things and creating things. I actually have an uncle who's a fine artist and he's made his living doing that. But for the most part, my bent towards um, my mediums of art was always creating something. And I didn't have a lot of opportunities for that growing up. It just isn't something in that moment that was offered very much to girls. So when I moved to Telluride, I had this great moment in time happen where everything came together and I met this woman who was a stonemason. The only other female, well, oh, that's not true anymore, but there aren't very many female stonemasons I've met. But anyway, I was really strong from already being um, an avid climber, rock climber and mountain biker. And she said, well, you have really strong back. Would you like to work for me? So that just kind of ticked all the boxes for me. And I spent years working as a stonemason. Um, it was very creative for me and it kept me really fit and outside and um, yeah and that's just kind of it went from there like I would ski all the time and when I would ski uh, especially at the resort at um, in Telluride I would see these skiers that were working on ski patrol but they're out there just ripping it up and in Telluride everybody <laughs> rips it up pretty much that lives there and I was like wow that's what I want to do I want to I want to make my living skiing so I can, you know, earn money doing what I love to do. So I set that as a goal and, um, and I worked on, I volunteered on search and rescue because I always just really love to be outdoors. And I always value the fact that, you know, stuff happens and we should be responsive to those people who are in need when we're in those wonderful places. And so I became a wilderness EMT and volunteered with search and rescue. I eventually got a spot on ski patrol. And about that time, I started going on international expeditions, and I was invited on my first one climbing in Sikkim, India. But it wasn't a ski trip, and, and that was a formative moment for me when I realized that I didn't really, I wasn't really that interested in doing that kind of thing unless I had my skis with me. And so from that moment forward, I focused on ski mountaineering. But it still wasn't a job for me at that time. It was the kind of thing I would save for, you know, eight, ten months and sell my mountain bike if I had to, to support myself on one big expedition a year so it was um it's something that you just really need to do because you love to do it and that's where it started yeah how did you make the transition to being able to do it full-time a lot of people ask me like how do i get your job <laughs> and the simple answer is you just need to do what you love to do because you love to do it and not because somebody's going to pay you for it and it took a lot of years actually before 
I had an opportunity to join the North Face athlete team, which was the goal I'd set myself. It took five years, actually, after that first trip. And I just kept asking. I just, every year, I would ask again and say, hey, this is my current resume. Am I ready yet? And really, what I was winning the World Free Skiing Tour and partway through my Seven Summits project to be the first person to climb and ski the Seven Summits when I was finally offered a position on the team. And so here we are. So you have recently, this is a question I like asking some of the uh, more traveled guests that I have on the show, people who have been to the furthest reaches of the earth, um, especially when they're there, to kind of explore and discover um, and to have fun in in nature is, um, you know, for somebody like you who, I mean, you've spent time in Greenland, in the Himalaya, in the Arctic. And so I I guess I wanted to ask, what does exploration mean to you or mean to a person in, in 2019, in the 21st century? And I guess I ask that a little bit of context is like, we have mapped all the land on the face of the earth. And so a lot of what we see people doing now are kind of executing these cool feats, whether it's great skiing or climbing or chasing speed records or things like that. But since you spend a lot of time in these wild places on Earth, I just wanted to put that to you and ask, like, what do you think it means for human beings to be exploring the Earth in 2019 and going forward? You're definitely right that there was a moment when it was exploration was as simple as what's next on the map. And in my mind, I I used to, and in some places I still do, like physically, geographically, have these places in my mind where I want to kind of fill in the blank spots on the map in my mind of what is right around the next corner. Like, say, in my home range, you know, really to understand what every little nook and cranny and valley is like, which I've not done all of the Tetons yet. Um... But I think that the nature of exploration right now in 2019 is really about keeping our minds open and learning to explore from whatever perspective is in front of you at the moment. And I say that partly like, partly from a parenting perspective even. I've got nine and 10 year old daughters and I can go climb the same mountain with them that I've done over a dozen times. But when I do it with them, I have a different perspective and I'm experiencing things a different way, seeing things through a different lens. And it's still, to me, that still makes it exploration. And I look at like this recent trip to the Arctic Refuge, I wouldn't have necessarily even conceived of doing a base camp hiking trip like that in the refuge for me. I'm like, oh, let's go. I want to go skiing. And even when I did a scientific glaciology project um, when I participated in one with my partner Dr. Matt Nolan it was still like okay how can I bring skis into this because that's what I really want to do and when I just did this trip now like the explore the level of exploration that I came back from has been as deep as me for as deep for me as any of the others really I've really just looked at the whole climate up there whether we're talking pure climate itself as in changes of weather patterns over time or the landscape or the people up there and the issues that are at hand and I've see, I'm starting to see things in a different way and that's helping me grow as a person but it's also helping me feel like I'm getting that element of exploration still even though it was a very different trip from the kind of exploration that I'm used to so yeah I'd say looking at things um, with a fresh eye even if it's something you've done before. 
Yeah. You've been working on keeping, since you mentioned the, your work in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, you've been working on keeping industrial development out of there for a while now. And how did you first get involved? Um, you know, living in Jackson, I mean, it's not exactly next door. So what was it about that region or that area or that issue? There's a little backstory to me finding my way to the Brooks Range of Alaska, which is where the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is. So what we're talking about is the far northeastern corner of Alaska. I always knew that I would go there someday, but I just, I operate from a place where, um, you know, I just, I, I spend a lot of time with myself and my ideas and thinking about what's, what's like the strongest pull I have, you know, at the moment. And, um, but the Brooks Range is not what jumped out at me. So I just kind of kept it shelved there for a while. And, and then when I came back from Everest and decided to intentionally have two kids with my husband, um, I was literally um, three months postpartum with the second one. They're 18 months apart. And I was like, I've got to go get out on an expedition again. <laughs> and I really, really need that for me. And I would literally have a babysitter come over and go hold myself up in my office. And instead of like be working, actively working on something that I probably should have been working on, I did the other thing that I felt like I should be doing. I started dreaming about where I wanted to go and what would fuel my soul and and therefore be good for everybody else around me too. <laughs> and I landed back on remembering the Brooks Range. And so I started studying the Brooks Range and I got really deep into Gates of the Arctic National Park, which is in the Western part. And I loved reading about it and early explorers and I was devouring books and then I started looking at photos and I was like, wow, those peaks don't look very skiable. <laughs> and the Aragetch are actually like beautiful big wall mountains that I would it would be fun to go climb someday. But what that did for me being a skier was like, I just asked myself to take a step back and reevaluate what I just spent a month or two studying. And I looked at bigger maps and I was like, oh, okay, well, there's the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge over here and let me look closer. Oh, and the highest mountains in the Brooks Range are in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And I was reading about like the porcupine caribou herd but how maybe they wanted to drill for oil up there and just getting the gist of those two things for me just triggered the sense of injustice and something that I've always been a lot about is justice and I was like wow I think I'd like to go up to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and climb and ski the highest peaks in the Brooks Range and experience that place for myself so that's what I did and I I put together a proposal and asked the North Face for support and we gathered a team of North Face athletes, largely women. And we basically inserted with a bush plane on skis and climbed and skied some of the highest mountains there. We did three peaks. Um, and then we skied out across the coastal plain. And that part of it, I was fairly insistent upon because I really did want to experience that coastal plain that I remembered hearing about from my childhood. And I didn't go into it with any preconceived ideas about what's right and what's wrong. I just wanted to experience it. And then that experience on that trip, that was 21 days we were up there and we were hauling everything behind us on sleds. And um, it changed me forever. And I came back from that knowing not only that I would go there repeatedly again, I set that intention, but that I would speak up for what I saw there. Yeah, and... So most recently you went and you took a group of, you led a group uh, of young kind of creatives um, and content generators there. What, what was that trip about? 
Well, yeah, this was my sixth trip up there. So that first one was 2010. And um, this one was one that the North Face pulled together um, in an effort to engage younger people into this conversation about really public lands conservation and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and um, and even the social justice issues that are around it because there's so many different things that we can talk about about in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. There are all those things. There's climate, there's landscape, there's wildlife, there's pure wilderness and and there's also there are also social justice and indigenous rights issues up there. And so that's what this trip was. Pulled together some really interesting and very enjoyable 20-somethings to get up there and experience it themselves and um, hopefully bring back their own unique stories. Yeah, what was something that you, that surprised you or that you learned during this trip, taking, you know, young 20-somethings into the wilderness and letting them just kind of ask questions of you? My experiences up there and in all wonderful, wild places I've been have been one of like, I want to say maybe immersion you know, where I just, I'm experiencing what there is for me to experience. And sometimes those lessons are difficult. Oftentimes, like I've said before, they come to me in the form of, you know, how do I move through this? And um, yeah, how do we get there? And what is this climate like? And, but there's, it's always about like these moments in between and the relationship that is there that we just need to uncover with the natural world around us. And so I took that approach. I really did not, um, I didn't want to kind of sit down and have a bunch of conversations about this is the history of the Arctic Refuge. And so nor, nor did I encourage that. I was there if those came up. But so I wouldn't say that like people necessarily asked me a whole lot of questions, but when they did, um, we spoke about it. And in instead, I was really excited to see people just kind of absorb their environment and what was around them in the, in a way that was felt authentic to them. And when I saw that happen and it happened at different times for different people and it may still be, you know, evolving and changing as it has for me. Um, what I saw was a lot of, a lot of humanitarian social justice feelings come up a lot of injustice around the humanitarian and social justice issues. Um, I saw a lot of um, incredulousness is a good word probably about how fragile the landscape is. Um, There are native people that live in the coastal village of Kaktovik that do have some you know hunting and fishing rights up there and so there are some a, a few sparse places there in this otherwise like pure wild wilderness that's untouched so i saw people approach it from a landscape perspective and from yeah from an indigenous social rights perspective and from a pure wildlife perspective because truly we you know we flew over thousands and thousands and thousands of caribou and we saw grizzly bears a bunch of them and we saw wolves and um, it was really awe-inspiring. But I th- I'd have to say that the biggest, most common thread for everybody, myself included, was a big piece on the social justice and 
Yeah, what struck me is that I keep thinking about since. It, it took like a week after getting home and kind of just musing about this all. It's like the history, right? And I, I can't stop um, not making this connection of the history in our country of our westward migration and how that has how it's played out really of the way that we approach the land, the way that we approach the people who lived on this land before our, some of our ancestors made this westward migration and how it's really the same issues that we're looking at up in northeastern Alaska right now in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. We're looking at this vast, pristine tract of irreplaceable landscape that doesn't exist anyplace else. So it's not only irreplaceable, but it's incredibly unique. And the, there are um, a ton of people who, all the, the Gwich'in people live a subsistence lifestyle still. They're an indigenous community. And to me, it just kind of represents like, are we gonna choose to have history repeat itself again in this last possible place that's left in our country to do that? And I, I don't know, I'm all about um, possibility and I am, while sometimes I get down on, on whatever's going on around um, in general, I'm all about possibility. I mean, obviously, like, I was like, I think I could ski Everest. And so, you know, I'm looking at this like, you know, it's possible that we have a different history with this last great expanse of land that we have right now. Well, and so you mentioned, you know, coming back from this trip and having some time to sort of sit with your thoughts. And I wonder, having gone on trips like this so many times to these wild places, to these far off places, and then come home. What does that process look like? Like, how do you find a way to internalize and apply the things that you have learned, you know, while you're out and make them work, in a, make them work for you in your day-to-day life back home with your family? Immediately upon returning, it's usually pretty easy to make all those things work. I mean, I usually find myself changed so much for the better in that I really don't sweat the little stuff. (laughs) Nothing is an insurmountable problem, you know, and it's like everything is just like, oh, don't worry about it. Time slows down. Life is just, it's a lot easier. Um, And I feel like I try and share that in my in, the, in my life, in my little bubble. So right now, I would be saying, like, in my family, raising my kids. And I, I come back, like, and I see everybody running around so fast. And I'm, I'm like, oh, even if it's just a week trip, I'm like, wow, I don't, I don't actually want to operate quite like that. And, and these things fall away because then we get absorbed back into life and, you know, we get moving again that fast ourselves. But there's a period of time where I'm like, oh, this is, life is good. And yes, now it's like, this is yet another reason why these kinds of experiences are so good. But you come back and it's like, I don't know, things are just easier. Just, it's easier to sit, to sit and take the space to like look at somebody and um, offer yourself to listen completely and wholly and um, to, you know, create time with people. And, and those are the kinds of things that you get really easily when you're out in the mountains. It's like, it's all about, you know, the people you're with and finding those times to like sit quietly and, you know, watch the caribou or look at the river and, and therefore also like look at those thoughts and everything slows down. And that's a beautiful thing to bring back to life. And I think it also like teaches you what's really important. Yeah, that leads me to my next question, which what is really important? You often post on social media about 
the importance of trying to be present and being in the moment and how being in the mountains and in these natural places kind of helps you reestablish that sense. I, it's funny, like I live in this really, really beautiful place. I live in in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and I like to say that I go to the I like to go to Alaska and specifically the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge when I feel like Jackson's getting too cosmopolitan for me. <laughs> and you know, it's that it's like it's like tapping back in, um, yeah, to what's really important. And for me, um, I really truly value freedom. Um, freedom is so important you know I mean when I was like when I was a little kid I, I knew that about myself and I said this among other goals I was like I'm never going to do anything or that I'm going to get arrested because then I could end up in jail and I wouldn't have my freedom like I'm serious like freedom freedom's my freedom would be my middle name if I could rewrite my name and I don't want to um I don't want to ever not feel free and when I'm in the mountains I feel totally free and I'm able to carry that with me when I'm not in the mountains. And if I ever feel like I'm losing it, I like to go back to the mountains. And that's different for everybody. But for me, it's this place where I have like a total space to just be present and be completely like tapped in. I really enjoy, um, when I say freedom, like a piece of it for me is also uh, looking at like at life and how I fit into life. And I think it's, I think we all often look at that, you know, whether you're riding the subway or taking the train right now or in traffic and you look around and it's like, oh, okay, all these people are commuting at this one time. Well, you're thinking about how you're fitting into the world around you. And when you're in a place like the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and the world around you is this incredibly wild, pristine, intact ecosystem, it taps into a really, um, into like a base human value for me is where humans fit in, in the world. And then that takes me back to this, you know, justice piece and that do we have the right to basically erase all of these perfect places from the face of this earth. Um, and so for me, I, I want to do my part to try to protect what I see as the last great perfect place that we have left in our country. Yeah, and being a mother... How do you kind of pass that, how do you pass those values onto your kids? Is it just a matter of kind of taking them outdoors and, you know, instilling that conservation ethic in them? Or is there something more to it? You know, the, taking them outdoors is key. And outdoors, it doesn't need to be outdoors to the Arctic Refuge. It can be outdoors anyway. It can be to your local park. Um, and, you know, you look around at, like, plastics on the ground and I'm not like force feeding my kids conservation ethics 24 7 um, I think a lot of it is about like looking at the world can and and like I just said like figuring out you know how do you fit in you know and and are you so removed are we so removed from from the natural state you know of humans not you know not too long ago where it was natural to walk right on dirt trails on dirt not even dirt trails you know is it there's is it natural to drink out of plastic water bottles like i'll take my kids for a walk we might go for an evening walk after dinner when some friends are over and go on the trails right near where i live at jackson hole mountain resort and i know where like there's some really beautiful fresh water springs and i'm not afraid to drink out of them 
and I'll say, hey, let's go for a walk over on Seven Bridges Trail and, you know, drink. And, and then when we're there, I'm like, hey, let's drink out of the spring. And then the kids will ask me at different points whenever we're out on hikes, can we drink out of this? Can we drink out of this? I'm like, well, let's think about it. Where are we? Mm -hmm. Probably shouldn't drink out of that one, at least not with filtering it. But, you know, we, well, we do know these places where we can and then not being afraid to do that, you know, to, being, to be a part of the place where we're natural parts of the ecosystem. It's natural for humans to drink fresh spring water when it's perfectly clean and you know it's coming straight out of the earth, right? And people are afraid of that. People are afraid of like interacting. And so, you know, I don't force feed it. I just kind of offer them opportunities and, you know, short moments. And kids are, um, kids are that natural person that I was just saying that I think so many of us are just, we're so in our well-defined comfort zones and kids don't yet have well-defined comfort zones. So you, you put them in these places and they're actually pretty darn comfortable. You know, we took them when they went to the Arctic Refuge when they were five and six years old. We spent hours playing on the side of the river with little pieces of sagebrush and wildflowers and rocks and played fairies, you know, and they were like, oh, I'm going to play snow fairy and I'm going to play, you know, whatever fairy. And we've, we've just played with what was there and like that's natural. And so for kids to have that kind of relationship wherever it is that they are, I think is really important. And then, you know, talk about a lot of things too, like, hey, we don't walk out the door without, we almost never, because nobody's perfect and certainly I'm not, but we almost never walk out the door without our refillable water bottle because we have those conversations. It's like, look, what plastic, it's at the bottom of the sea ocean now and it's changing, you know, the, all of the fish and the fish that we eat. And so I just have these conversations with them. But for the most part, I just like let them be kids and give them opportunities to, to be um, bewildered by like the beauty around them. And then the rest of it's pretty simple. It's natural. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, a couple more questions that I wanted to ask you, Kit, while I have you. I know um, you got to go soon, but I wanted to ask. You took a, a meditation retreat in Nepal last year. Is that right? I, I wanted to ask. I did. I wanted to ask what that entailed and what you learned. There was a really, there is a really wonderful uh, high-level um, Buddhist teacher named, uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Pakchuk Rinpoche who comes to Jackson every so often. So we ended up doing this exchange with this really special person that we had never met yet. And then this past year, it was right in front of me and I noticed it probably for the first time, um, this opportunity to go to Kathmandu and um, Pakdok Rinpoche was also teaching at this retreat, but specifically it was his uncle, Choki Nima Rinpoche. And, you know, I guess he's been doing this annual seminar for, I don't know, 28 years, 35 years or something. Um, and I went to it and I basically, you know, wasn't like I slept on the floor with 500 other people every day. You know, I stayed in a hotel, but every day I went to this, um, I went to this retreat that was at this Buddhist um, center. Um, and we sat, you know, in there in that great big hall full of like really beautiful sculptures and listen to some truly amazing, profound teachings all morning long by Chokinima Rinpoche that were usually translated. Sometimes were given in English, but the people from probably like 10 or 15 different countries. So there were also translators and people were listening in 
on their headphones, whether they were Spanish speakers or Japanese, and it was um, it was a really diverse group of people. And the, but the thing is, is those teachings are really quite universal, and it's like what I was just saying. It's you know the nature of the mind, and how do we um, how do we cultivate space between our thoughts, and what are the benefits of it, and um, and how important compassion is, and yeah that kind of thing so it was a lot of and then we would kind of be guided in a in a meditation practice and um and it's something that I've brought home um you know not at the level like I'm at out you know sitting for an hour and a half every day or something but I get up and most every morning that's what I like to do um is sit and it's not that I like to do it it's really difficult for me to do um but when I do do it when I do sit and observe my thoughts and um, try and have space between those thoughts and hold that for a while whether I'm focusing on my breath or on a flower or you know focusless meditation or whatever else I'm trying to do there um, I have a better day I'm happier Um, life is just so much easier everything is so much more peaceful and so that's what I really brought home with it and that I'm so much more likely to move through life and find something to smile at, you know, find, just find an easier path and uh, a lot more compassion and, um, yeah, have a better day. Fewer impulsive decisions, all those kinds of good things that I think we're all looking for. That sounds great. Uh, one last question, and I'll let you go. I just wanted to, to throw this at you. I know that um, you're in Jackson Hole. Jimmy Chin lives there as well. You guys are friends. You've done expeditions together um, and hang out together. What is something that you can tell us? He's kind of, for as, as ubiquitous as Jimmy Chin has been lately, I feel like he's kind of a, still you know, a mysterious sort of presence in the whole, the whole outdoor recreation space. So what's something that you can tell us about him that would surprise people, you think? Well, I don't know if this would surprise people, but we're on this. We just finished this subject, so he meditates every day. He's been intermittent fasting, so not eating till like 11 in the morning or something. Somehow he can do that. Oh, I know what I could tell you. He's like, well, you see this on his Instagram page probably, but he loves to surf. He surfs really big waves, and it's like totally amazing that a guy from Mankato... Michigan, Minnesota, um, you know, and also otherwise mountain bound in Jackson, Wyoming, um, can go out and hang with the big guys surfing. It's pretty amazing. Um, and then I still like, I'm training constantly and running up the tram and I'm like, Rob and I were just doing that the other day and I was laughing like, when's Jimmy going to get home? And then I'm thinking the part I didn't say out loud was, wow, I wonder like if he's going to be able to crush us still running up the tram and he'll he'll definitely be able to keep up he's like somehow able to just come back from doing something like having some intense directing project that he's on and then surf vacations in between and then um come back to the mountains and just hammer as hard as he did before so he's definitely have another planet but if that was ever a ever a push to like practice the mind cultivation of morning meditation. Um, I know he's onto something there too. That's great. Thanks so much for sharing. I know you have to get going. So I just wanted to say thanks so much for coming on the podcast kit. It was great talking to you. Thank you. If I could, if I could leave some listeners with just a couple of like action items, if they're at all interested, 
um, and learning more about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and what they might be able to do to support it. Right now, you know, in 2017, we had this kind of tax proposal, but tax budget um, issue that got pushed through at the last minute, at the end of 2017, largely by Senator Murkowski. Um, and it basically opened the oil refuge to oil and the National Arctic Refuge to oil and gas drilling. Um, and so right now there's a bill um, on the House floor, um, 1146, that would repeal that provision because that provision in the in the budget from 2017 essentially mandates at this point. It's skirted around the normal congressional actions um, to open the refuge to drilling. It basically mandates that oil and gas lease sales happen um, in the Arctic refuge in the next couple of years. And part of the pain of that in my mind really is back to this justice thing is that it does so without a proper EIS. It does so without like a fair and transparent evaluation of whether it's something that that landscape can 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 uh, sustain. Um, and so that piece of it is just totally and completely unfair. It shouldn't be done the way, in my opinion, it shouldn't be done the way that it's being um, done at the moment. And a lot of other people agree, otherwise we wouldn't have this current legislation. So, you know, reach out to your people and talk about H.R. 1146 and um, look into the Gwich'in Steering Committee. The Gwich'in people are the native Athabascan people who live off the caribou up in the Arctic. Um, that's spelled G-W-I-I-C-H-I-N, I believe. It's a tough word to spell, but Gwich'in. And um, so, yeah, the Gwich'in people, they're really an autonomous indigenous tribe and um, very important, I think, in our country that we do still have that and support their leadership. Um, and then also I volunteer with Alaska Wilderness League because it is the national organization that speaks up for our public federal public lands in Alaska. And the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is um, at the top of the list of the work that we do with Alaska Wilderness League. So go on over to um, alaskawildernessleague.org if you want to learn any more about those issues and, and how to get engaged. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Greg. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much again to Kit for making time to chat. To keep up with her latest adventures, check out her Instagram at KitDSki. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. If you've got questions for me, suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like, please throw us a rating and a review. See you next time.